0: The refrain brain pauses to honor the victims of the Buffalo mass shooting: Miss Catherine Cat Massey, Miss Pearl Young, Miss Ruth Whitfield, Miss Celestine Cheney, Miss Roberta Drury, Miss Geraldine Talley, Mr. Hayward Patterson, Mr. Aaron W. Salter, Mr. Margus D. Morrison, and Mr. Andre McNeil. We say your names. We honor you. Well, happy Monday and welcome to the Reframe Brain Podcast, where we center brain health and unseen injuries. I am your founder and host, Erica savage Wilson, and I am so delighted that you are joining today. If you happen to be watching us by YouTube, if you would please hit the like button and the subscribe, and then also hit the bell so you can get the notifications when our podcast airs every first and third Monday of the month. If you happen to be listening to us by Apple Pod, Google Play, one of your select podcast platforms, please leave us a rating. I'm so excited to have you all here. We have been having phenomenal guests. Um, We kicked it off with uh, Dr. Uh, Nanette Spencer, who was a brain injury champion herself and went on to get her doctorate in nursing. Um, And then we had our stress solution strategist and also nurse practitioner the wonderful Wendy Garvin Mayo. We've also had a Yogini, a corporate health and wellness expert, and Sherelle Tucker-Moore. We've had just phenomenal guests, and that's just only to name a few. So if you haven't watched those, please go back and watch those. So on today, I'm very excited to bring to you a phenomenal clinical psychologist that is going to walk us through some of what we've been experiencing Um, as an individual and as a collective uh, through the pandemic, and also really share with us how unseen injuries not only impact us, but generationally. So I am going to introduce our guest for today, the phenomenal Dr. Danella Jones. And here's a little bit about Dr. Jones. Dr. Danella Jones earned her doctorate degree in clinical psychology at Salding University in Louisville, Kentucky. She was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and is currently a practicing psychologist in South Florida where she provides therapy to youth and families. Dr. Jones also offers training and outreach to the community related to the impact of trauma and adversity, racial equity, and intersectionality. She has conducted research on race-based stereotypes and evidence-based practices for treating complex trauma and has written blogs on how to talk to children about race and racism. She is passionate about working with high-risk, underserved, and diverse families, as well as survivors of interpersonal trauma. Dr. Jones aims to increase access to and reduce stigma of mental health in the Black community as well as in other communities of colors. In addition, Dr. Jones loves to cook, listen to music, dance, watch psychological thrillers, and spend time with her family. Reframe-bearing family, I welcome, let's all welcome Dr. Danella Jones. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for joining us.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: <laughs> Yay. Well, see, we um, do this podcast on Mondays because one of the things, uh, my aim is to psychologically help people not think about Monday as being a case of the Mondays, having the Monday blues, really to kind of have a better outlook on Monday. So love that what you do is so much related to really reframing the brain in the sense. So we're going to get right into it. Dr. Jones, if you would invite the Reframe Brain audience into your decision to be a clinical psychologist uh, and how the representation of your field, which is only 4% Black, has informed your work.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. So I would say anyone who um, knew me intimately as a child knew that I always wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I loved animals and I still love animals. So I originally went to college um, to be an animal science major and actually picked my university for that reason. Um, So maybe halfway through sophomore year, I, I realized for different reasons that that wasn't the field that I wanted to be in um, coincidentally, around that time, I also applied for and received a scholarship where I, um, part of the requirements was to volunteer at a nonprofit. so I chose a sexual assault center and a domestic violence shelter. Um, so that experience was in a lot of ways very emotionally heavy as I was, you know, accompanying people, mostly women, um, to their, their sexual assault or rape exams. Um, There were several people, women, who were fleeing um, violent relationships and those types of things. Um, But I also found that very fulfilling. I was able to accompany kind of therapists, doing outreach to schools and communities, um, kind of teaching the community, really just increasing awareness of sexual assault, dating violence, um, mental health, and those types of things. Um, So I think that in conjunction with some of the experiences that I had growing up, um, as well as the experience of those, experiences of those close to me really just kind of all kind of came together at the same time. And At that point, I said, I, I want to major in psychology. And I did. And um, I knew that I wanted flexibility in my in my work and field. So um, after I received my bachelor's, I, I went on to graduate school and um, earned my doctorate in psychology.
0: Excellent. And was it surprising to you that within your field that
1: it's only four percent black? It's interesting because I I learned that statistic um, maybe two years ago that it was 4% Black. So in some ways, I think when you hear the number, it's surprising. Um, But really when I reflected and thought back to my own experience, um, all of the professors that I had throughout undergraduate, graduate training and um, kind of forward, all of the supervisors that I've had, um, specifically with all of the clinical supervisors I've had, which I would say you know, it's a guesstimate, maybe 20 plus, um, only one was Black, she was a Black woman. And I remember that experience um, very well, because that was the first Black supervisor I ever had. So I think speaking experientially, while I just kind of learned that 4% of psychologists were Black, um, it really does mirror my experience um, in training and that many of my professors who were psychologists and supervisors weren't Black. Um, so in some ways, not very surprising. Wow.
0: And just so you all know, um, in our pre-call interview, this is what Dr. Jones, she was the one that shared that information with me. And I was um, myself uh, quite shocked, I think in a way, but then as you walk through Dr. Jones, um, your experience matriculating through your study program that uh, the people, uh, as you said, um, that supervised you, those professors, were all um they weren't black you only had the one um so th- thank you for shedding light on that um if we do have maybe some young people that are paying attention or watching the youth reframe brain or maybe you have uh children uh, people around you that are um in college and they have an expressed interest um please continue to cheer them on as they navigate that space so dr jones we're gonna um, continue to move through your experiences and if you could walk Uh, the Reframe Brain audience through what, um, because in your bio, um, we heard interpersonal trauma a couple of times. If you could walk us through what interpersonal trauma actually is and how it shifts interpersonal trauma, how it shifts the way our brain um, is naturally geared to operate.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So trauma is defined in a lot of different ways, but really trauma in general is just, a disturbing experience or a set of experiences for a lot of people, it's a set of experiences um, that results in kind of long lasting, prolonged, um, a prolonged like negative or harmful impact on a person's functioning. So that can be their emotional functioning, their cognitive functioning, the way they think, um, and also their behaviors. So interpersonal trauma is really just a subset of trauma in that, um, it's one of those experiences or set of experiences that occurs within a relationship. So if you think of um, a trauma, for instance, a natural disaster where someone maybe loses their home, is separated from families, loses access to resources, that event um, may be experienced as very traumatic, um, but because it's external or environmental, it wouldn't be considered interpersonal trauma. Interpersonal trauma would be something like um, sexual assault, sexual abuse, um, emotional abuse, neglect um, domestic violence. So these are those kind of events um, or experiences that occur between people. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what makes something interpersonal trauma right Its occurs between a, a caregiver and child or between siblings or between um, a relate within a relationship or you know with a family friend so those types of things
0: okay and so then how does that um that intimate relationship how does that then impact the way that our brain naturally it is geared to operate
1: yeah so i think the best way to explain it is just to provide some kind of baseline for the way the the brain naturally operates and then the way trauma impacts that so this is a very kind of simplified version of the way the brain operates um but you know, we kind of have what we call our reptilian brain, which is kind of in the you know the first part of our brain to develop. Our brain stem, that part of our brain develops in utero. Um, so we think about babies, the fact that they cry and they're just like, I'm hungry, I'm scared. I'm they're those very basic foundational um, functions, right? So thinking about. If we hear a loud noise or we, we're um, scared of something, we, imat- we automatically kind of jump or hide or, or fight. Um, so that's kind of the first part of our brain developed. And, and really it just keeps us safe physically. And then we think about um, our limbic system, which is what we call like the emotional brain. And that part of our brain is responsible for managing um, intense emotions, consolidating memory, those types of things, so it of allows us to kind of experience something that may be negative. Someone cuts us off on the road, right? We we become, we may become like agitated or irritated, but typically, you know, our st- our stress response system um, kind of goes back to normal, and we continue about our day. And then our frontal lobe, which is kind of here, um, is responsible for executive functioning, which is uh, what we think of as being able to organize. Um, plan, think before we act. Right, have impulse control, those types of things. So that's the way our brain, um, a brain kind of not affected by trauma or other things, typically functions. Um. So with trauma, mm-hmm. um, trauma disrupts all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So going back to you know the reptilian brain, that the first part of our brain that develops in utero. Um. Sometimes we see with people who've experienced trauma. You know, we all have. We've all kind of seen where somebody maybe seems like they overreact or mm-hmm. something that seems kind of minuscule or small really triggers a person um, and that's because with trauma and especially interpersonal and complex trauma that kind of occurs repeatedly um, people will start to feel like they're constantly in a state of danger so there's this um wonderful um, woman who is a doctor that I, I um, follow and um, really learned from her work, um, Dr. Nadine burke Harris, and she uses the example of kind of a bear in the woods, right? So if we come across a bear in the woods, our natural response is that fight, flight, or fright, um, that, that fight, flight, um, or freeze, right, response. We, we fight the bear, Ooh. we run as fast as we can, or we hide, we freeze, um, and that's normal. We're supposed to do that. It keeps us safe. Um, But then she uses the example of what happens when that bear comes home with you every day. Um, And you're constantly in this fight, flight, or freeze state. Um, And that really disrupts our our stress response system so that we're always in a constant state of fear, of hyperarousal, looking around our shoulder, kind of figuring out, um, am I in danger, am I not? Um, And then kind of moving on to the limbic system, that emotional part of our brain I use the example of you know if someone cuts us off on a roll, We may get upset. We get irri- you know, we, we become irritable. But in a normal situation, we kind of go back to normal. We after a minute or two, we you know keep going. And with trauma, it disrupts that part. It, it disrupts that part of the brain, and that we're not able to manage intense emotions. So you may see people who experience um, feeling just very overwhelmed. Maybe they're even emotionally numb, severely depressed, very anxious. Um, they become very angered and um, angered and reactionary toward things. Um, and that part of the brain is also responsible for mem- memory consolidation. so that impacts our trauma impacts our ability to consolidate our memories. And then finally, going back to the frontal lobe, that part of our brain that's responsible for executive functioning, um, we see this a lot of times with thinking about youth who you know appear to have ADHD. so they're kind of hyperactive, they're inattentive. Um, it's difficult to, you know, kind of stay focused or um, plan and organize. So trauma makes that part of our brain kind of underactivated. So Mm -hmm. we see poor impulse control, right? So acting without thinking, um, inability to focus, inability to plan or organize things. So really trauma just affects the way our brain functions, um, all of those parts of the brain function. And then I, I also mentioned that it just impacts our emotions, our um, thinking, or our cognitive function our behavior. So mm-hmm. I kind of spoke to having those intense emotions, you know, feeling overwhelmed or numb, um, you know, angry, anxious, those types of things. Cognitively thinking about our belief systems, right? The, the thoughts, the beliefs that we tell ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So people who've experienced trauma, interpersonal trauma, those those beliefs start to change. So maybe they have these core beliefs that are, you know, things like the world is unsafe or I am worthless or I can't trust anyone. Um, so it, it, it kind of really changes the way we interact with others, the way we interact with the world, the way we feel about ourselves. And then um, behaviorally, we also see once again, that that impulse control. So we'll see a lot of compulsive and impulsive behaviors. You may see substance misuse, um, externalizing right. So a lot of like that oppositional behavior, right? Poor relational functioning. You know, having difficulties in relationship with relationships with people. So not being able to trust people, or maybe trusting people too fast and too soon. Um. So really, you know, trauma impacts the way we we kind of move in the world in a lot of different ways.
0: Wow, that was such a really um, good pictorial, um, um, I guess, a view of the world, actually. So when we kind of take into consideration a lot of the things, perhaps the behaviors that we see, um, and you let me know, correct me, please, Dr. Jones, but along social, the lines of social media, the way we see people behave uh, as it relates to when you talked about the oppositional behavior, um, mm-hmm. um, the way that we see people kind of move in spaces where they should be exercising a little bit more of the executive functioning, um, but the behavior is more oppositionally. It kind of gives us a really good pictorial on um, kind of how the world uh, seems to be moving um, in, in different spaces of time. So mm-hmm. um, really, really appreciate how though that type of trauma um, people, it sounds like people live more so out of the old brain than out of the the new brain where you explain to us the executive functioning, the the ability to process, reason, um, the balance, being able Mm -hmm. to make very clear choices. Um, So thank you for that. And then that really moves us into, as we were talking about, how that really gives us a picture of how the world is moving with the ongoing pandemic. And so... um, just thinking about the ongoing pandemic, um, um, social determinants um, are effectively demonstrated the grave in um, any inequities in quality housing, um, well-paying, flexible jobs, and an employee's ability to provide um, home and family accommodations. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. Without, with all of those things being said, can you share um, with us what the impact of trauma looks like for families generationally navigating inequities and how that travels throughout the family, especially um, negatively for members zero to 22 years old. And so just for the audience to know social determinants, meaning social determinants of health, uh, where a person is born kind of like work play live born. If that is not, um, of an optimal level that absolutely has an impact on a person because as Dr. Jones laid out for us, if um, in your social determinants of health, if it's not necessarily safe, if there's still grass growing, um, if people are striving to make um, ends meet, um, if it's um, not particularly safe then dr jones talked about um someone that she follows there's that bear so the bear is always at home the bear is always in the parking lot the bear is present in that particular neighborhood that absolutely impacts how a person is then how they um move in life with perfect strangers on the job um and, and just in different places so that's what i mean by social determinants meaning the social determinants of health so we're thinking about the pandemic We're thinking about those social um, determinants um, and then just people not having access um, or being limited by income to quality housing and good jobs that allow them to be able to work remotely, take care of family, small children. Um, So then the question is, what does the impact of that look like generationally? If that's something that was the grandparents, the parents, Um, a caregiver then the child themselves and then that cycle just continues to repeat how does that impress um for members that are 0 to 22 years old
1: yeah um so, when I think when I hear the term kind of social determinants of health, I think about, you know, particularly families of color, um, immigrant families, maybe even LGBTQ mm-hmm. families, some um, single mm-hmm. parent families, low income families, families with disabilities. I can go on and yeah, on yeah. when it comes to um, families that, you know, typically have experienced these inequalities. Um, so, you know, I think when we think about COVID 19, it's really experienced as a collective trauma, which once again, is going back to that that definition of trauma. The difference is it's experienced as a whole based on, you know, our physical location, our environment. So all of us are collectively experiencing this, this, this disturbance or this um adversity. And obviously just as you know, with any trauma, it impacts people in different ways based on our past experiences and, and those inequities that we may or may not face. Um, so I think about these families experiencing this collective trauma and then we think about inequality in general that's also an adverse experience right so experiencing discrimination or classism or just lack of access to resources that can also be experienced as adverse for people so anytime we kind of compound two traumas or multiple traumas that really just exacerbates what we already expect to see um so i think about kind of what you said you know a lot of people have been affected um by the pandemic and thinking about you know losing jobs and our businesses and really these families families you know like i can say families of color immigrant families um, single parent low-income families have experienced this to a, a greater level um they often experience this to a greater level because of those pre-existing um inequities Um, So thinking about access to quality homes, access to resources, financial resources. Um, Also, something that has kind of been out there has been shown since you know the the beginning of the pandemic is that um, rates of domestic violence have increased, um, rates of child abuse have increased, Um, and part of that is just because of what we know to be risk factors for those types of things. So we know that people who are experiencing financial stress, homelessness, loss of you know income jobs um that increases a lot of stress a lot of people during the pandemic had more time at home right so more time with their families which in some ways can be very positive positive. and if there were already these stressors that can also kind of be negative um so there might be increased frustration with part with their partner or increased frustration with their kids you know with remote school and those types of things um, and just overall limited resources so unfortunately um that's been something that's kind of, you know, come up during this pandemic is some of those, you know, really just increased rates of, of violence um, or familial violence and abuse and those types of things. Um, yeah, so yeah. If, um, thinking about the way that impacts children or those zero to 22 is, you know, this pandemic has impacted all of us in different ways. but kind of going back to the frontal lobe and the fact that that's the part of our brain that develops last um, and really develops into adulthood. I always joke about teenagers, because I work with a lot of teenagers and parents who are like, why don't they understand this? They should know this. And like like their frontal lobe lobe isn't fully developed, right? They, they really don't, they, they, you know, it's still developing. So there's still that lack of impulse control sometimes, that inability to think about, you know, this, this thing that I do at 17 could possibly impact me at 30, at 40, at 50. So that front, of, you know, the frontal lobe is still developing into early adulthood. And with that, it means that for children kind of growing up in this time, they're really developing these formative memories. Um, So I think about, you know, the videos we see on social media and that type of thing of, of, you know, young children, they see hand sanitizer and they automatically know, like, I have to sanitize my hands or they understand wearing masks and just, you know, different things. They're much more likely to understand FaceTime and Zoom, right, because they, a lot of people have been um, kind of socially connecting to people during the pandemic. So for children, especially these these memories are formative. Think about high school students who, you know, they, they graduated high school on Zoom. You know, they, they weren't able to walk across the stage. They weren't able to kind of be in a, in a physical space with family and friends and peers. Um, so that's definitely impacted them. Um, and I'm actually really interested, you know, we're still, you know, we're on, I, I hope, on the back end of this. But, you know, we're still kind of living in this space um, with the pandemic. But I'm interested to see. Um, what research shows kind of five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, regarding the long-term impact that this Mm -hmm. has, Um, specifically because we know that, you know, we, whether we're introverted introverted or extroverted, we are social beings and we thrive in communal settings Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. So thinking about what that isolation, um, or how isolation and social isolation will impact people and specifically children and adolescents um, years from now. I think we're still kind of getting pieces of that and we'll continue to get um, and learn more um, as you know time continues and there's more research.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for that. It's just really important, I think, for the audience and for, uh, for me, for all of us to be able to grasp that. Um, the global pandemic, um, these inequities that we see um, related to housing and how um, children are impacted, um, it really does, um, it, it really kind of um, should still us in um, the responsibility that we have as adults um, to ensure that number one, our children are safe. Um, and that number two, that when we see them perhaps maybe behaving a little bit differently mm-hmm. to bear in mind that um, as Dr. Jones has told, uh, uh, shared with us that that frontal lobe is still developing But then to also, Dr. Jones, do you advise people that if there's some behavior that maybe doesn't seem in line with um, the child that they know that they then reach out for, um, um, talk with their primary care doctor about maybe getting some help at that time?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think... Obviously, there's still a lot of stigma around just health, um, but specifically mental health. Um, and you know, I'm obviously biased because I'm a psychologist. But I, you know, as a personally and professionally, I really um, know that I, I value um, that ability to be able to talk to your provider. You know, seek seek um, therapy, seek those things. It doesn't mean that you are, you know, quote unquote crazy. Or um, we can all benefit from support. Right. And someone to kind of guide us and walk us through some of these experiences and adversity. So I would definitely encourage people um, to seek seek support.
0: Thank you so oh, much. And okay. I've been very um, transparent with the audience around my own mental health and that I have an outstanding mental health team. Um, it's two people, a neuropsychologist and a therapist. And we meet weekly. And it is um, so important as a... Um, at my big grown age, as people would say, um, but particularly as I continue to navigate through my own traumatic brain injury. So I'm thinking as an adult who um, brain has been compromised and the root system of my frontal lobe has um, been damaged that I have to have that level of support. How much more um, should we be concerned about our children? So thank you, um, Dr. Jones, because that is a part of the work that she does um, is really um, kind of taking the thing away from support, mental health support, particularly in communities um, that are not served and sometimes don't have the access that they need to. Dr. Jones, um, as we end out, can you please tell the audience how they can be connected with you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So currently I'm providing um, services in South Florida, um, but I also provide trainings um, on on several mental health topics. So I'm a lot of training specifically related to racial trauma, um, racial and ethnic bias and microaggressions, um, trauma, intersectionality, those types of things. So I'm able to provide services virtually, you know, with this kind of new world that we're living in with Zoom. um, I've been able to provide services in that way. Um, so I just, you know, encourage anyone who wants consultation, who's interested in, in training or outreach, who just wants to reach out and kind of get more information. Um, you, um, can connect with me on my LinkedIn account. I'm pretty simple. It's, it's Danella Jones, um, So, um, D-A-N-N-I-E-L-L-A Jones, and that is my LinkedIn account. So feel free to, to reach out to me.
0: I love that, and LinkedIn is its own world and database. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Danella Jones, it has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for joining the Reframe Brain. Um, Thank and you for, for having those- me. Oh my gosh, absolutely! And I just want y'all to know, Dr. Jones is a member of our family, so it's so good to have her. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say it early, y'all, but I waited until the end to tell you all. Um, she is just a joy. My sister has known her. She always brags since she was in the third grade. Um, so just to have that familial connection and to see someone who was so young, always had the same beautiful, bouncy spirit, um, become an adult that carries that same spirit is such a joy. So I certainly appreciate you love. And to the Reframe Brain, thank you so much for connecting. Uh, we really appreciate you. Please like and share this episode. Send it to someone who um, you feel like would definitely benefit from it. Um, I know that I have benefited greatly from it. So I hope that you will do that. And just remember, everyone, um, we do this work one beautiful breath at a time. Take care and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.